Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. Today we're going to do a patchwork episode. This was the annual weekend where I have to attend graduation activities. Of course, the co-hosts have real jobs, which makes us a bit different from many of the people that are sort of gurus in fitness and nutrition online. Um, We have third-party, regular-type jobs. So what I'm going to do is offer a little bit of news myself. Uh, Dr. Nelson is going to offer a little review on cold water immersion and what it does to muscle growth and things of that nature. And then Phil will chime in as well. So expect this to be sort of one-offs that I'm going to patchwork together uh, to get you something this week so you can stay up on you know, news, science, and, and what's going on with Strength Guild and Phil and powerlifting. So let's get to it. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Nutrition and exercise science news has been sort of backing up on me. Today, I just gathered a collection of things from recent weeks that have an immune system focus. Uh, let's check out this first one. Those of you who are bulking, this might especially be pertinent if you do sort of a dirty bulk. This is through labroots.com from, uh, it's April of this year, so it happened just recently. What's that frozen pizza doing to your immune system? This is by Tara Fernandez. It says, in a recent study, scientists have found that commonly used chemical additives in processed foods have toxic effects on your immune system. Now, you might think, well, how is that allowed, right? Don't these things have generally recognized as safe kind of status. Uh, Well, that's a grayer area, I think, than many people know, and that's why I'm telling you. So the study found that these immunotoxic substances cause the body to produce fewer antibodies. Well, if you've been following the news at all, you realize that's what vaccines are trying to elicit, an antibody response. So nobody wants to have a blunted antibody response if they choose to go get a vaccine or maybe if they've had uh, COVID-19 and their body just didn't respond as well because we know there's a a pretty broad range of how people respond with antibodies. So maybe this is part of it. Another reason to be careful with these processed foods. It says one of these preservatives, tert-butylhydroquinone or TBHQ. You may have seen that if you ever look at the ingredients list on foods. TBHQ is present in about 1,250 processed foods, including microwave popcorn, cheese crackers, frozen pizza, chocolate bars, breakfast foods, right? And that really um, 
makes me raise an eyebrow because often we we hope that breakfast foods can have a healthy component. Uh, obviously, they don't all. Um, but this preservative is probably more concerning than we may have thought. The article goes on to say that, of course, the FDA has approved a lot of these food additives uh, long ago, decades ago. Uh, but because of this, of course, manufacturers don't have to undergo these updated testing you know, procedures to try to understand what these compounds do to people. It says, quote, the pandemic has focused public and scientific attention on environmental factors that can impact the immune system. Before the pandemic, chemicals that may harm the immune system's defense against infection, of course, didn't receive a lot of attention. So to protect public health, this must change, according to Dr. Olga uh, Nadenko. Their team has studied 63 food additives that were sold in the U.S. from 2018 to 2020. Uh, they also took a look at nine different uh, chemicals that are you know, the concerns that they leach into foods from their packaging. Anyway, uh, the data indicated that TBHQ has strong immunotoxic effects. The take-home message, again, if you're bulking, if you're eating a lot of processed foods, uh, which, again, health-conscious people probably not as much. But if you are, you might want to be cautious at least, I would say, for a month. This is completely speculation. But before you get vaccinated, uh, if you want to get a robust antibody response, again, a lot of this is just speculation. But nobody wants um, immunotoxic effects or immunosuppressive things happening to them, even if things, these things were formally recognized as quote unquote safe so the again the data contradict prior studies uh, performed in animals and humans that found that uh, these compounds did not have immunosuppressive effects so it, it'll be interesting as time goes on to look at the different methods and whether or not these data are better or worse uh, just being newer doesn't necessarily mean you know these replace all the old data of course so uh, these researchers are calling for the FDA's standards of safety assessment to be refreshed, essentially. Uh, so we'll see if there's enough data for the FDA to take it seriously. Okay, moving on. Here's one about muscle growth. Um, and I learned a few things with this one myself. This is also Tara Fernandez through Lab Roots back in February, but I haven't got a chance to talk about it. And I just don't know how this is going to apply uh, to lifters, although it certainly looks to me like it might. So let's take a look here. Hugs from immune cells heal muscle. Now, this caught my attention because my dissertation, I made people very sore with eccentric exercise. I actually ran them downhill, but I've done squatting and benching protocols as well, purposely trying to activate aspects of their immune system and how that, that's involved in muscle hypertrophy, right? It's not just testosterone or growth hormone or what a lot of uh, people think. So here... Uh, Tara Fernandez reports that Australian researchers have discovered a regenerative factor produced by immune cells that drives the repair and regeneration of damaged muscle. Now, we purposely cause DOMS, right, delayed onset muscle soreness and those little micro tears in muscle. So this really caught my attention. In fact, my downhill run protocol was meant as an ethical way to, quote, unquote, damage people uh, and elicit this kind of immune involvement. Anyway, it says, upon sensing injury, muscle stem cells are activated and come to the rescue, synthesizing a cocktail of biochemical factors that promote tissue growth and repair. Okay, so growth factors, got it. What if instead of raising 
uh, stem cells, these in little farms, if you will. Doctors could then treat patients with the, the cocktail itself, and that's what these researchers at Monash University, uh, the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute, that's what they were taking a look at. And again, this doesn't sound that different from the way that bodybuilders or powerlifters might take different, you know, performance-enhancing drugs. So it says, the study published in Nature, and I think many of you know this is, these are the big girls and boys, uh, they describe that um, zebrafish models. Now you might say, wait, Lowry, zebrafish? But bear with me. Zebrafish model of tissue regeneration could explore complex mechanisms that govern muscle healing. It says the fish, of course, have some advantages. 70% of their genes are shared with humans. Uh, and, of course, they can be quickly bred. So you can get data uh, rapidly, and you don't have to necessarily wait. And obviously, you're not involving the invasiveness with people. It says, as lead scientist Peter Curie explains, the team observed that phagocytic immune cells. So phagocytosis just means munching cells, sort of like Pac-Man cells. But they're not just... Uh, soldier Pac-Men kinds of things. They can also be medics, right? The soldiers become medics. And I've talked about this uh, for many years. But these macrophages were among the first to uh, enter the scene following muscle damage. And again, we do create micro damage ourselves. What we saw were macrophages literally cuddling muscle stem cells. So we also call those satellite cells. You might want to search the archives on Iron Radio. We had Dr. Joey Antonio. He's the founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, he came on an episode uh, long ago and talked about stem cells and how activating them can be a, a good idea for hypertrophy over the years. Uh, anyway, these muscle stem cells or satellite cells um, were being cuddled by these macrophages, uh, and then they started to divide and proliferate and, and essentially cause some muscle repair, right? Repair and growth, I think, is what we're about. That's why we cause some micro trauma in the gym, and then we try to respond. It says the first responders uh, that clear out the cellular debris, and again, that's what I've talked about for many years, uh, were one group. But then there's another group of these macrophages that set up shop for longer periods of time and, and sort of become the medics secreting growth factors and whatnot. Um, this says, as Curie and colleagues discovered, the process is far more complex. There are actually eight genetically distinct macrophage populations in healing muscle. So, again, learning something here myself. These zebrafish macrophages were uh, flooding injured tissue with a protein known as NAMPT, of which visfatin is the human equivalent. V-I-S-F-A-T-I-N. So what is this visfatin? Is this like a new GH or IGF-1 that bodybuilders might one day use and abuse? If you look at PubMed, just a quick search here, let me show you. Back in uh, 2008, um, current medical chemistry, a researcher, Ernest Adigate, he talked about visfatin being essentially newly discovered and defined it as an endocrine and autocrine as well as paracrine peptide. That's a lot to talk about, right? But endocrine hormones would be more like testosterone. It's secreted in one gland, goes downstream, and affects a target tissue. Autocrine, that's something secreted by a cell that affects itself. And then paracrine is something secreted and then used locally you know, by the cells next door. Uh, and the peptide has many functions, including enhancement of cell proliferation, uh, 
uh, and hypoglycemic effects, so glucose disposal effects. So very interesting. Again, that's Ernest Adigate, um, Current Medical Chemistry 2008. The title of that paper is Visfatin, Structure, Function, and Relation to Diabetes Mellitus and Other Dysfunctions. So again, around for over a decade or known, if you will, but very interesting cropping back up here when it comes to muscle growth and repair. It says, do similar processes happen in mammals? Yes, say the researchers. Using mouse models of muscle wasting diseases, the team demonstrated that a hydrogel patch that was impregnated with this NAMPT showed similar effects as those observed in zebrafish. So damaged muscles were replaced with healthier tissue faster. Very interesting stuff. So again, digging into the role of immune system in muscle growth. And I lectured on this for years, but this is newer stuff that was beyond what I was talking about, right? With my just sort of one or two uh, macrophage model as far as soldiers becoming medics. So um, many different kinds and again, immune system in the news. And lastly, one more out of me from the same source. I might try to get Tara Fernandez on the show, actually. Uh, Food allergies be gone. Nanoparticles call for an immune ceasefire. So if you do have a food allergy, and many of you know that there's common culprits, milk for some people, and I don't mean lactose intolerance. I mean actual allergy involving the immune system, right? Swollen hands and hives and difficulty breathing, things like that. Uh, Milk, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, wheat, Soy, fish, and shellfish are some of the big culprits. So there is some research from uh, Andre Nell, a nanotech expert. And let me tell you about this. Uh, They are looking at the liver to try to reprogram the immune system to act um, in a more non-responsive way, right? Because what is allergy? It's an inappropriately excessive response of the immune system. They're trying to calm that down. It says nanoparticles have distinct physical and chemical properties from their larger material counterparts. And once administered into the bloodstream, um, their final destination is the liver. So they're trying to get them to accumulate in the liver and affect how your certain white blood cells, um, specific T cells, function. And then calm down the allergy symptoms. So here it says um, the liver's specialized immune system favors tolerance over immunity, if you will. Uh, In their report published in ACS Nano, the team demonstrated how delivering a single allergy-causing protein to the liver uh, within a nanoparticle carrier is enough to provide long-term relief. Uh, The science did a series of experiments with mice, okay? So you're not going to purposely cause, you know, anaphylactic response in people and try to stop their death, (laughs) in a sense, so... Uh, mouse model of egg allergy and here's interesting but like the therapeutic value the mice were exposed to egg proteins and sure enough they got asthma like symptoms difficulty breathing uh, nanoparticles were administered to the animals and they sequestered in the liver and they triggered production of these regulatory t-cells um, the nanoparticle treatment prevented the onset of the allergy symptoms so if you're one of the people who say oh crap i can't you know i'm afraid of egg or i can't have dairy or whatever it might be uh, this might be your ticket coming down the road this nanoparticle approach it says follow-up experiments uh, could expand the potential of nanotech uh, for various inflammatory conditions right not just these hypersensitivity allergy type reactions but including type 1 diabetes lupus and rheumatoid arthritis 
so some autoimmune conditions. So fascinating stuff with nanotech on the horizon. Uh, again, more T-cell and immune types of things. So I'm going to cut my portion of the show here. We're going to go to break, and right after the break, we'll have Phil talk a little bit about the powerlifting world, and honestly, I don't know everything he's going to talk about. And then after that, Dr. Nelson is going to offer some cool stuff about cold water immersion and whether it's going to help or hurt you know, your, your physique and muscle growth and, and all that kind of thing. So thanks for your tolerance this week. Again, we're working class people. I mean, we're professionals and working class, so... This is how it has to roll out this, uh, you know, one or two times a year. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it This is Phil Stevens, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild. We are each recording alone today because Lonnie is at graduation ceremonies and Mike is traveling. 
So I'm just hitting you up here with my part. Um, I'm going to hit some news. So there's been lots of uh, lifting stuff going on that we just haven't taken the time to mention. So I'm going to hit that up and then uh, got a couple listener questions. So there's been a lot of big lifts going on and a lot of those happened to the current uh, open. And I just wanted to hit that up and give some shout outs to people. So, uh, yeah, I mean, first place overall, first thing overall, um, the first, second and third place in the meet went to Mariana Gasparian, Hunter Henderson took second. She had a 672 Wilkes. Mariana had a 692 Wilkes and, uh, Ashley Garcia took third with a 644 Wilkes. Um, if you've been around powerlifting very long, um, you'll just notice those Wilkes are crazy. So, uh, like women are now just crushing Wilkes scores. So, um, and then the men, it was kind of a fun one. Uh, Chad Penson came in with a 642 Wilkes, took home $25,000. Dan Bell kind of had an off day for Dan. He's been crushing it in 2020 and 2021. About it. He got a 632 Wilkes. And then John Hack took third uh, with a 619 Wilkes. For honorable mention, though, John, and uh, it's worth mentioning, he squatted in sleeves. So this meet was uh, all the records for this meet were to be set in uh, wraps. John decided to lift in sleeves, and he still pulled out third place. So that's pretty huge. Um, but. We'll move on to the records, and then they're in no order here as far as uh, men and women, but just kind of how they came about. Chad Penson, again, who ended up taking first with Wilkes, he became the first man to squat 400 kilograms. That's 881 pounds raw with wraps at a body weight of 90 kilos. For you uh, non-kilo friendly people out there, that's 198. So you're talking more than four times body weight with an 881 at 198 and he also set the all-time world record total in his weight class at 997.5 kilograms that's damn near a 2200 pound total 2194.5 and he is in he's the first 90 kilo lifter to total 11 times his body weight so damn near a 22 pound 2200 pound total at 198. Um, Hunter Henderson, shout out to her. She lifts right down the street at SBC, uh, Strong Barbell Club with Ryan Silva, JP Price, and all them. Um, she freaking crushed her squats, and there was no question on the depth of these. Uh, if anybody's seen the videos, it was, uh, she sunk them, and she was got the all time squat record. Of 649 pounds. And then uh, also, I think it was two and a half kilos she put on the total. So a total of 1545.5 pounds uh, for Hunter. Those are just insane weights. It's still right now, it's the women that really impressed me. Uh, they are just crushing shit. But Dan had an off day as far as uh, I think he only hit his opener deadlift. And uh, he was coming in to hopefully you know, chip his all-time world record total up. But uh, on the way to doing that, he did, uh, he took over the squat world record. 
So there it was three people were holding the 500 kilogram mark raw with wraps. And he, uh, he just went ahead and added five kilos to that. So 505 kilogram squat, uh, which is a huge, huge squat. Dan is just, he's doing amazing things and it seems like he's doing it like every other month. Um, which is, which is pretty crazy. But, uh, Janessa Labette takes, she took home the, uh, 67 kilo deadlift world record. That's 148 pounds with 563.2 pounds. And uh, again, that's 148 pound female deadlifting 563.2. I, I hope something like this starts putting the end to me catching shit for any saying any grown ass man of any weight class should be able to deadlift 405. Um, these women are just insane. So congratulations, Janessa. But Blake LaHue puts up 910 kilograms, 2,002 pounds at a body weight of 82.5 kilograms. And then a, uh, a shout out to Sarah Schiff. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Sarah a little bit like 13 years ago or something like that and met her at uh, the the CrossFit that my wife was working at and Sarah was she was just strong and wanted a deadlift and it was uh it was crazy so it helped her a little bit but she's went on to work with uh numerous people but right now I, I'm pretty sure she's still training at uh with my buddy Jesse Burdick up there in Northern California and Sarah years ago set the uh the goal of the the heaviest squat or heaviest deadlift uh, by a female, and she pulled it off with an all-time world record of 287 kilograms. <clears throat> so, in the deadlift. So, congratulations. So, like I said, that was a huge meet. There's been lots of stuff going on in the uh, world of powerlifting, but that's the fun stuff. And a bunch of world records set at that set at that meet, and just a good time. A lot of people took home cash. Like I said, the first place. I think the first place people took home 25,000, second 10,000, third 5,000. So uh, it, it's good. It's good to see money start being thrown around at these athletes and uh, stuff that didn't happen before. So sorry, take a drink of my coffee. And then a uh, couple more things that happened. And these are just insane if you haven't seen the videos. Uh, I, I will kill his name because I'm just not that worldly, but everybody calls him Lasha. So a super heavyweight, super heavyweight weightlifter. If you haven't seen these videos, you need to go look at them. He, uh, kind of crushed news lately by having the heaviest snatch and heaviest clean and jerks lifted and caught on camera. So, and he makes them look routine is the, the crazy thing about it. He snatches 225 kilograms. Again, for you guys, uh, you kilo uh, ignorant people out there, that's 496 pounds. So I was doing snatch grip deadlifts the other day at like 440, and uh, those are horrible. And I was talking to my training partner, like, this dude, he doesn't just deadlift it. He easily pulls it off the ground, then throws it over his head. Uh, it's just insane that, that thinking somebody, he's throwing. 500 pounds straight from the ground overhead and then goes on to hit a uh, 270 kilogram clean and jerk 
which is 595 pounds uh, in the clean and jerk. And you can see his coach or uh, whoever it is. It's somebody in the training hall there uh, just going nuts. But for a massive total of 495 kilograms, a 1,093-pound total in weightlifting, which is just unheard of. Uh, both of those lifts would be, if they're done in competition, would easily be all-time world records. And, of course, that being said, they're both all-time it's an all-time world record total. But, uh, yeah, so lots of fun stuff going on there. I just wanted to share that with you guys because we haven't had the, we haven't taken the time to talk about any records and stuff like that lately. And uh, I'm also going to hit up a couple questions. So I asked uh, people today just to see if we have any questions that they want want me to cover. And I'll go with the first one. Uh, Brian Haley asks me, how many squat, how many total squat repetitions or sessions, sessions should someone complete before trying to teach someone else how to squat? This is a tough question, Brian. Um, I have come up with this. It's a, a kind of like the Wilkes coefficient, but for coaching. And I, I came up with it about seven and a half minutes ago. Um, just for you. So what I figured is if you take the load, the load you are currently able to lift in the squat, you add that to your body weight, and then you multiply that by your training age, not your your life age, not how many years you have uh, been on this earth, but how many years you have been training, and then you divide that by pi, uh which is, what is that? It's like 3.142857 or whatever it is. Um, you're going to come up with a number. And what I'd say is probably a, right around a 5,500 or 5,750 total. And then you're probably safe uh, to start teaching people. But no, in all seriousness, bud, um, this is a tough one because... Everybody needs to start somewhere. If you have aspirations of being a coach, you need to start somewhere. And the tip I give people is, you know, if you want to do this for a job and you eventually want to be paid for it, what I suggest is you start out helping people for free because you, have, you haven't cut your teeth at all. So with your friends and things, you start listening and start giving cues and helping them. If you, I mean, the one thing I would say is, like, don't try and teach something you can't competently do yourself. That'd be number one. Uh, and don't step on toes. But I mean, if you can't do it yourself yet, you have no business teaching somebody else. Let me take a drink of my coffee here real quick. But Sorry, it's early still. But after that, you have to start somewhere. And I think you see two things happen. A lot of times people come in way too early. And try and try and coach before they know anything, and they're trying to charge people like they did one competition. So I, you know, I'm the East Shawnee County record holder, and they start posting up, you know, selling online training, or like they they take fourth in a figure competition at their local YMCA, and now they're a figure competitor coach, charging a bunch of money. You know, I'd say cut your teeth and just start helping people for free. And you need to get some reps in. It's just like it's just like 
the sport of lifting. You're going to get good at it. You're going to start to get an eye for it by actually doing it. And, uh, or if you can find somebody and shadow them, like I did a ton of that. I just did it. That's how I learned how to, to coach Olympic weightlifting. I went to, uh, uh, at that time where Sarah Robles was being coached and Alex Lee and a bunch of other competitors, uh, a, a nice fella named Joe Matella was their coach at the time. And I sat there and I shut up and I watched and I listened and, uh, soaked in as much as I could and did some lifting myself and, uh, then learned from there. And then I slowly started helping other people do it and teaching myself how to do it and things like that. But there's lots of cues you need to soak up and things like that. But yeah, I mean, you need to start somewhere. Like, like I have no knowing you, I have no doubt you can take a kid and, and start helping them at least learn the basics. You know what you're doing, but, uh, still be open to know that you don't know everything. I mean, at this point I've been actively running my very own gym, a gym of my own for this is year 11. Before that, I was paid by other people to do it for at least that many years. And I still know I don't know everything. Uh, <laughs> I still try and learn every single day. But a lot of that learning also comes from my clients. So you actually learn as you're doing it. I'll learn different cues. I'll learn different things because the cues I'm saying aren't working. So I try something else. I try something else. And then something I say clicks with that person because that's a big one you'll find is like the cue you use for Joe Smith. He It just doesn't work for John. So you have to find another one. So like at this point I have this vocabulary and this database of cues for one thing I want them to do. I know the ones that work most often, but then I have backup ones that I can use. Okay. That one's not working for them. So what do we need to do? And then just get in the eye to ID really what's going on. And in the squat, you know, it's, it's not that hard, but sometimes, you know, take some videos and things like that that you can view yourself, not even for them. Um, like I don't post a lot of Instagram and, and, uh, Facebook rep stuff, but I take a lot for me, uh, to look out of other people, just be able to slow things down. It's like, what really is going on? What do we really need to fix? Cause sometimes it can, in the instant, it can look like one thing, but it's something else. So, uh, but yeah, you need to get those reps in and, and things like that. But if, if you're, uh, if you want a tangible number, you can go by that new coefficient I just made up and that could probably do good, but I'm not sure. It'll take a lot of people a long time to get there. But Jason Crenshaw has a question as well. Um, and oddly enough, this is a question that came up with somebody else the other day. It kind of relates to it anyways. In terms of repetitions in sets, when repetitions are greater than 10, does that then just focus more on cardio or is there strength training in that as well? I'd say the answer is yes. Uh, it, it could be both. So, um, like for me and, and all my lifters and Jason is one of my lifters. Uh, when we come out of competition mode, like we just did that meet. So I'm doing lots of reps right now. And, uh, we are used to doing singles. We aren't used to doing tens. Like, of course, as we get closer to meet, that's what we're going to train for. That's what we have to do in a meet. So we haven't done any tens and things like that. So, uh, 
doing those right in that situation where we're not accustomed to it, it's it's strength training too and cardio at the same time. Like you'll get wrecked in soreness. And I think people mess up and they think that strength comes from from just uh, just hitting heavy loads. And no, it, it doesn't. We need to build muscle. We need to build build a bigger motor and things like that. And then then that's where your strength generally comes in, in my belief. Uh, it doesn't come in those last 10 to 12 weeks <clears throat> where we peak for a meet. And I posted about this the other day. And I think that's where a lot of people mess up is they they kind of do this all over the place training most of the time of their life and it's not structured at all and then they're 12 weeks out from a meet and then they contact the coach say hey bro can you can you get me ready for a meet and uh you know i have this issue this issue this issue and hey yeah we got 12 weeks we got 12 weeks to get ready and they expect this coach to in 12 weeks fix everything plus make them stronger and get them ready for a meet the really only thing we're doing in those 12 weeks is we're realizing the strength you already have. If you have a little problem here and there, yeah, we can work on that. But the strength gains and the problem solving comes in all those other months, the rest of the year, uh, and where a coach could have helped you. So you're, you're putting a lot on these people's shoulders when in reality what they can really do in that short of amount of time it's just you get you ready to realize the strength that you've already gained from the other months that you've been doing stuff. So, uh, but to get more pinpointed on your, uh, your question, it depends. Now, if you got like somebody else told me the other day, like he had a client come in and had him a question for him. He's like, he's been doing all sets of 10 and then he goes like sets of 11 and then he goes sets of 12. He never changes the weight. He just keeps adding more volume. And at some point, you're going to get so used to that load that it's going to start move away from, you know, purely strength, purely anaerobic into the aerobic side, just because you're never changing the load. So yeah, all you're basically at some point, if like all I did was squat 135, it would turn purely aerobic. All I'd be doing is working that system. I'd never be stressing the the anaerobic system. So, yeah, I mean, if you're really used to that things and you're not putting a greater load stress on your body, at some point it will turn into uh, just aerobic activity and cardio, as you call it on here. But when we're not used to that, getting those reps in and things like that, it is strength training. Like I know I'll get stronger. Like I did 475 for 15 the other day. I think he was there for it. Uh, that's going to make me stronger. It is. I mean, my ass, my glutes, my hamstrings, my back were wrecked for like five days afterwards. I'm just now feeling right again. And I'm going to go into the gym and do something like that again today. So, uh, it, it depends. It depends on what you're used to. Uh, I really like switching it up people when they're not used to low reps, like all they've ever done is high reps. We're going to get used to some of that stuff. We're going to make you neurally better. And that's usually what we're working on there. We're just getting your body used to heavy loads. It's a skill in and of itself, uh, getting used to heavy loads and, uh, also neurally just adept to moving it. Like I'm really good at low reps. Uh, you'll see a big variance because we'll do, we'll cycle our squat things, our squat variations, for instance, uh, We'll do a five-week 
a three week and a one week. And I have a huge variance in between my five, my three and my one. Uh, because I've just trained myself to be really good at low reps because that's my sport. But some people are not. There's a really small jump in between three and one and five and three. And that's because they're just not used to heavy loads on their back. It could be a mental thing like, holy shit, this is heavy. Uh, they don't know how to approach a weight like that and not think about it. So they're sweating that heavy load in their mind. They're doubting it. Whereas I've gotten myself to a point where I just don't think about the load. I just, okay, going to do this. I just got to do one. This will be easy. <clears throat> so, um, and then also just what they're used to. Uh, if you're really used to, to high rep stuff, then you're usually not near as neurally adept. You're only using a percentage of what you're able to. You're really good at conserving energy and you're really good at doing reps. So we saw that with the uh, Fred Hatfield and Tom Platts thing where Fred killed Tom in the uh, the reps or in the, the load, the intensity. He got a much higher weight, but uh, Platts crushed him in the reps. At 500, I think he hit 500 for 23. So uh, that's because each of those people, Tom was more used to doing volume and hypertrophy work. Whereas uh, Hatfield was used to doing heavy singles. So neither is wrong. It's about what you want to do. But it makes your question kind of sticky. At a certain point, if you're doing a bunch of reps all the time, like 10 sets of 10, uh, if you do that for a few months and you're used to doing low reps, yes, you're going to get stronger. You're going to build muscle. You're going to do that. If you stick around and do that for, say, two years, at some point, if the training intensity never goes up, you will slowly verge into aerobic training where you're just getting more uh, able to do more reps. So that is, I think, all I got for you today, guys. I'm going to get ready to go squat, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Hey there, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and wanted to do a short review on a brand-new narrative review that literally just came out <clears throat> not too long ago. Uh, thank you to everyone who sent this to me. That's uh, super cool. I know Dr. Andy Gelpin has uh, been on the show and he did a posting on it. My buddy Dr. Scott sent this to me and some other people sent it to me also. It's entitled Post-Exercise Cold Water Immersion Effects on Physiologic Adaptations to Resistance Training and Underlying Mechanisms in Skeletal Muscle, a Narrative Review. So, long title. Uh, this was published in Frontiers in Sports and Active Living. Uh, the main author is Aaron C. Peterson, S-E-N. And you can get it as an open access, which is really good. Uh, I'd highly recommend that you give it a read. It was published on April 8th, 2021. Really, really well done narrative review. Again, just for people listening, a narrative review is... Kind of the author's, I would say, interpretation of the data and pulling together multiple data sources into one. I, I tell people and students that it's kind of like a good one-stop uh, shopping to start at. Uh, one of the downsides of narrative reviews is that it's still potentially going to be biased um, towards the authors. And one thing to look for is kind of errors of omission of maybe other uh, studies that may not have been included. 
Uh, it doesn't go through a lot of formal statistics like in a meta-analysis where a meta-analysis you're trying to pool data from um, other studies and use statistics to get a little bit more power by having uh, more data. But either way, uh, really good study, very well done. Uh, the amount of time it takes to write these up is uh, quite a bit and a great one-stop shopping for uh, cold water immersion. And what I like about this narrative review is that it was only really focused on cold water immersion. So I'm sure you've seen uh, reviews and other just even on TV shows or if you see tours of uh, high-end training facilities, you'll see uh, contrast therapy a lot. They'll have a hot tub and then they'll have a cold tub with uh, sometimes circulating water that's cold or they'll put ice in and you'll have athletes kind of go back and forth. Some places only use cold water immersion. Uh, I stayed at a really nice hotel in Dallas when I was doing a presentation, oh man, a year and a half ago, two years ago now. And in the, the spa center in the basement, they actually had a cold water immersion tub for anyone to use, which was really awesome. Um, so as the name uh, refers to, cold water immersion, you're literally just sticking your body into water that's cold. Uh, most of the time the water is kind of stagnant, it's not circulating. That's not always true, but if you've ever gotten into a very cold uh, stream versus even just a cold tub, it can feel quite different. Right? So moving water is gonna have that constant temperature being moved across your skin, and it's gonna feel much colder because your skin doesn't have the opportunity of heating just that little layer of water next to it. Like as a side note, uh, if you've ever used like um, neoprene uh, for diving, right? So a scuba type suit, neoprene, uh, wetsuit, that actually warms a thin layer of water next to you and the thickness of the neoprene will determine uh, how much of that water is exchanged. You can look at stuff that have like seams that are sealed versus not. All of that is doing is just changing how much of that water is exchanged out. Your body will heat up that layer and helps uh, keep you warm. If you've ever gotten into a cold water immersion tub, I have a converted freezer in my garage, sealed all everything in a 15.6 cubic inch freezer, uh, filled it full of water. Uh, right now when I'm at home, it's around 38 degrees Fahrenheit. When you get in, it's very, very cold, obviously. Um, but just even sitting there for a little while, it feels a little bit better. Part of that is because your skin is going a little bit numb. Um, but part of that is you're warming up that little layer of water next to you. And when you move, all of a sudden everything feels cold again because you've disrupted that. Um, so there's a little bit of difference in you know some of the, the situations uh, that you can have it set up. Um, the other part, too, is that it gets really complicated really fast because you can look at all different types of parameters. We can look at, which we'll talk about coming up here briefly, hypertrophy, different aspects of sports performance, uh, related to hypertrophy, lean body mass. You could look at more explosive sports. You could look at endurance performance. So there's all different markers of physical performance to look at. And on top of that, you've got the basic parameters, just like weight training with your dose. Uh, how cold is the water? Again, is it moving or kind of stagnant? And how long are you in for? 
Uh, those are going to be the main things that are going to determine the effect. And like most things in physiology, it's not necessarily a linear effect. Um, so we want to pay attention to that. And unfortunately, there isn't really a super standardized protocol for cold water immersion. Um, so based on the research, each author is going to do their best interpretation. But it's going to be a little bit different. And so that makes it kind of hard to pull all this data together. Now again, my bias, I did a whole course on physiologic flexibility. And we have a whole module in there on cold and especially cold water immersion. Um, so I've spent, oh God, a long time looking at all the research and as of a couple months ago, went through all of it um, again. And all of that is in, in the course there. Um, I wish I would have had this narrative review <laughs> when I did the course. It would have uh, saved me a lot of time. But um, so let's get into it a little bit here. Their definition uh, here of uh, cold water immersion is the protocols typically involve submersion of the limbs and or torso for 5 to 20 minutes in very cold water, uh, temperatures between 8 to 15 degrees uh, Celsius. Right, so if you're looking at that in Fahrenheit, the warmest water for cold water immersion I've seen in Fahrenheit is around 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that seems relatively warm, but if you've ever gotten into water that's 50 degrees Fahrenheit, it's cold. Um, it does not feel very good at all. Um, there's some interesting early data looking at cold water immersion for um, recovery and a bunch of other things. Um, but we're going to basically focus on <clears throat> what are some of the changes that they saw. So the main thing that you're probably interested in, which I was interested in also, is changes in skeletal muscle hypertrophy or gains. If you look around the old internet now, it would seem that cold water immersion uh, will absolutely crush all of your gains and that you should never do it and it's an absolutely horrible idea. And when I first started looking at this literature, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. That seems a little bit too over the top. And like in fitness, everything is, you know, oscillating from one extreme to the next extreme. Um, but when I looked into the actual data, uh, in summary, I would have to say that cold water immersion, with a few caveats here, uh, does appear to affect muscle hypertrophy in a negative fashion meaning that if your goal is all-out hypertrophy, which again, if you are an athlete, may or may not be your goal, um, but if you're a physique competitor or potentially a power lifter or just trying to gain more muscle, uh, then obviously this is going to be of interest to you. Again, the really big caveat with that is that almost all of the studies that have looked at hypertrophy have used cold water immersion literally immediately after training. So they would do their training sessions, a lot of times which is standardized uh, to whatever protocol they think is best for hypertrophy. And then they would subject, uh, in some studies, they would split them into groups. One group would get cold water immersion, the other group may not. Uh, they would just kind of sit there. Uh, that is more subject to a placebo effect. Um, other groups, they would maybe do single limb. They would put one limb in cold water immersion, the other limb they would not, and they would do the same type of bilateral training on uh, both limbs. So there's different ways of doing it, but pretty much all of the studies that, are, that I know of that have looked at muscle hypertrophy have done some cold water immersion immediately 
after training. If you're not doing that, let's say you're doing, in my case, I tend to do my cold water immersion in the morning after doing some cardio stuff, and then I'll do lifting uh, most afternoons later, I can't take the data that they've observed in the studies and even transfer it to my case or the clients that I work with. Again, this doesn't mean that the data is not useful. We just have to keep in mind the context of how the experiments uh, were actually um, conducted. So in summary, what they said here in the study is, quote, to summarize, there is mixed evidence for the influence of cold water immersion on indices of skeletal muscle hypertrophy, with three of six total studies showing attenuated muscle hypertrophy of either the thigh or the wrist flexor musculature. And both of the two available studies showing a negative influence on cold water immersion on muscle fiber, specifically type 2 fibers. And quote, there is no evidence that post-exercise cold water immersion has beneficial effects on measures of skeletal muscle hypertrophy. If we look at some of the actual data, they did some really cool uh, charts in uh, this study, which I would highly recommend you pick up and look at. Um, but they did a simple plot. And the confusing part is that not all of the studies use the same method to determine muscle um, growth, right? So in this, they kind of split them up between a whole muscle cross-sectional area, which is literally as it sounds, we're gonna look at a, a whole muscle we're gonna measure the cross-sectional area. There's also studies that have done muscle fiber cross-sectional area. And then we've got kind of what I call full body, lean body mass uh, changes. Usually this is using DEXA. And I tried forever to figure out exactly in terms of the amount of muscle that it may be costing you in a percentage and the downside with the lean body mass changes with DEXA is they were generally done by only one author and it was hard to figure out what the amount of muscle is because it was looked at as a percentage change from baseline. Um, so if we look at the whole body level and then go more microscopic, uh, from the charts like lean body mass in the control group versus cold water immersion, for a lower body, um, in one study, cold water immersion was slightly better. Again, we're talking by like 1% to 2%. Um, another study looking at upper body, uh, cold water immersion was slightly better again. Another study looking at total body, cold water immersion was a little bit less. Now again, the, the big caveat with this is if you're looking at this via DEXA, and the authors did a really good job of trying to standardize the DEXA, you're still kind of within the air percentage of, I would say, the DEXA measuring machine. So we're not seeing massive changes in lean body mass at a whole level with cold water immersion, um, but how much of a change is debatable at a whole body level? If we go more microscopic and we look at whole muscle cross-sectional area, uh, there's been a few more studies that have looked at that. And we see some of the studies showed uh, cold water immersion having a negative effect, like a minus 5% uh, almost, 
Uh, one other study showed around a negative maybe 2 to 3% drop compared to control group. Uh, some other studies looking at forearm circumference uh, didn't see much change. Uh, muscle thickness in the wrist flexors uh, control group was much higher than cold water immersion. Same thing with a study from Roberts uh, looking at quadriceps. Uh, another study looking at thigh circumference was kind of a split. So most of the data, again, for whole body, or I should say whole muscle cross-sectional area, shows that the control group was better than the cold water immersion. Again, the range of effects here we're talking about. Uh, the biggest change uh, was seen by Roberts, 2015. Muscle mass of the quadriceps was about, percentage from baseline looks about 15% in the control group. Cold water immersion was around maybe 3%. Uh, again, smallest change we saw was, was no change. So pretty variable data on that. If we look at muscle fiber cross-sectional area, again, it's relatively variable, right? So Robertson, or Roberts again, same study, 2015, again showed that cold water immersion saw a percentage decrease from baseline. And same thing with uh, type 2, that was a type 1 fiber. Uh, type 2 fibers <laughs> control group, again, was a little bit better. Um, and then the other two studies were kind of split. Uh, so most of the data from fiber cross-sectional area shows that cold water immersion does appear to be having a negative effect on mu muscle hypertrophy. Uh, again, the hard part is trying to scale from whole muscle cross-sectional area and muscle fiber cross-sectional area to a whole body level is pretty hard to do, right? So... For hypertrophy, I would say, yeah, doing it immediately after training, if you're really, really trying to maximize hypertrophy, probably not the best idea. However, doing it at another part of the day, uh, we don't know what the effects are for hypertrophy. Uh, briefly for dynamic uh, strength, uh, not as much of a difference there. I would say looking at all the data on their charts, kind of a tie. Isometric strength, maybe a slight impairment in the cold water immersion versus the control group. Um, again, not uh, super clear on that. And then the paper goes on to talk a little bit about strength endurance, rate of uh, force development, um, ballistic uh, movements. They do talk about uh, the metabolic effects, looking at protein synthetic response, uh, anabolic signaling, and all those studies, while I find them super, super fascinating, uh, I tend to look more at what is the performance or the phenotypical changes. Right? So what is the outcome? Did you add more lean body mass? Did you move the weight faster? Could you lift more weight? Like, What is the actual performance outcome of that? Uh, one, because that's what more people care about. And I think the interesting uh, molecular effects just kind of lead us to setting up better experiments at a whole body level. Uh, there's some interesting stuff on ribosome biogenesis, and they go deep into a lot of the other molecular effects here. Uh, they did put together a really cool chart called resistance exercise plus cold water immersion. I'm not going to go through all of it. I should check it out. 
It has some of the potential mechanisms of what we think might be happening. Uh, one of them is we may see a blunting of mTOR1 signaling. This may be turned down. And if this happens, you're going to see a decrease in muscle protein synthesis. And if that continues, you're going to see a decrease potentially in muscle mass. So that's just one of the mechanisms of how cold water immersion may be affecting it. Um, other things are potentially myostatin, IGF-1. We've got some heat shock proteins that can be changed. Uh, myogen potentially changes, which may be related to satellite cell account and the concept of myonuclear domain or myonuclear content. So there's lots and lots of different things uh, going on. Uh, one of the things that gets brought up a lot is, is there a change in inflammation? Uh, most of the data I've seen on that, I would say probably not, although it's still questionable. Uh, the amount of uh, cold water immersion you need to do, in my opinion, to change inflammation is pretty darn high. So I'm not really sure that that is happening. Uh, briefly on the endurance effects, I think there may be potentially some benefit to augmenting endurance response. Again, there is not many finished studies looking at actual changes with that. There is some very interesting molecular data that's still very early. Um, so I personally am not too worried about doing cold water immersion for a short period of time after my aerobic training in the morning. It's an N01. I've done it with a few clients. I haven't seen a change with that. Um, again, for hypertrophy, if that's your ultimate goal, again, probably not the best idea. So again, read the study. Super cool. Uh, the big grand takeaway, uh, if your all-out goal is hypertrophy, doing cold water immersion immediately after training, probably not the best idea. Again, how much of an effect is that going to be? very hard to say at this point. Um, other potential benefits, I would say, with performance is still up in the air. I know that some athletes feel really good and see performance changes with it. Um, others do not. Um, I would say it's kind of split right now, so you'd probably have to do your own um, testing to see what you, what you feel. Um, so even if you do it immediately after training, it might be costing you hypothetically a little bit of muscle, but athletes feel better and they can add a whole nother day of training. That may be a trade-off that's really worth it for them. Again, it depends on the goals and what you're doing. Um, this study didn't get into it, but I do think there may be a benefit with aerobic training. Um, so setting it up, I like to do it in the morning after doing some aerobic training. Uh, I tend to feel better. I'm not worried about any uh, counter effects with that. And then do my weight training in the afternoon. If you only have a limited period of time to do it, uh, do the weight training. And then maybe a couple hours later, you could do some cold water immersion. No data right now on the exact uh, timing of that. Um, so we don't really know. But anyway, I wanted to talk about just a somewhat brief uh, summary there. Uh, Post-exercise cold water immersion affects on physiologic adaptations to resistance training and the underlying mechanisms in skeletal muscle narrative review by Aaron C. Peterson in the journal's Frontiers. Thank you so much and take care.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.